Walk in the Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, a U.S. Army Combined Arms Center podcast on emerging doctrine and the Army's vision of warfare. Hello, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Lisa Becker, and this podcast topic is Leading with Intention, focusing on ADP 6-22 and FM 6-22. We welcome the Combined Arms Center Command Sergeant Major, Command Sergeant Major Steve Helton. He has been serving in his current position since April 2021. Previously, he served in Command Sergeant Major billets at each level from squadron through three-star commands. Welcome to the show. Thanks, ma'am. It's great to be here. This is awesome. Today, we will look at why leadership and leader development is so important to our profession. We have two major pieces of doctrine relating to leadership. ADP 6-22, entitled Army Leadership in the Profession, is one of our keystone doctrine containing overarching principles of leadership. FM 6-22, Developing Leaders, was recently published in late 2022. It contains the tactics and procedures of developing yourself and others. Sergeant Major, I first want to talk about the responsibility we have in the military to develop leaders. ADP 622 states that military leadership is unique because the armed forces develop and select their own leaders. What are your thoughts on this responsibility to develop leaders and kind of what makes military leadership unique? That's a great question, and I appreciate it. I mean, I think it kind of says it all in the statement. I mean, there is no outside entity that we send out to you know, headhunt for great corporate leaders to bring into our organizations. We build them internally at Echelon, starting with the youngest private and the newest lieutenant. And so I think it's really important that we fundamentally understand what it takes, really from the beginning of, of establishing trust with young people all the way to our most advanced battalion and brigade level assessments that we do to better round out our leaders before we put them in tough leadership positions. So I think just that description from beginning to senior sort of executive level, uh, there's probably a lot to talk about in there. I want to point out a quote from FM 622. It I think it points out to that responsibility is kind of what you're saying is active. It's throughout your career. The quote says, developing leaders includes holding subordinates accountable for maintaining Army standards, demonstrating the leadership requirements model, competencies, and attributes, adhering to Army values, and accomplishing missions. So, you know, it's not just one facet of our career. So the great thing about our doctrine is it really lays out process and the concepts that really make sense. Those four areas you talk about, can we just go through those one at a time? Sure. Let's talk and about maintaining Army standards. Yeah, that's that's fundamental to what I do. <laughs> I think it's fundamental to what we all do as leaders in the military, uh, but certainly in the Army. Nothing else works in combat when is it fundamentally underpinned by discipline and standards. And I know, like for Sergeant Majors and anybody that would listen to this, like, oh, here, here goes the Sergeant Major going to <laughs> yeah. what, what he knows. But I think it's a really important distinction to make about military leadership is that there's no way around, and this is experiential for me. You know, I've looked for innovative ways to try and motivate people and develop people and nurture people. And really what I found in extremists and tough situations None of that, although it's great and it's creative and it's good for people and it's good for building teams, none of that was really as effective as 
just the solid foundation of discipline and standards. So maybe it's more like these things are building blocks and standards and enforcing standards is a you know, fundamental building block to the process of developing leaders. So, yeah, I mean, I could kind of talk around this probably all day long on just that one subject, but, um, you know, accountability, um, holding yourself accountable. Yeah, I think if you're going to try and lead somebody and you don't, <laughs> we always say, like the video doesn't match the audio, mm -hmm. it falls flat, right? So I think number one, we got to think about ourselves. Um, this also should be inherent in every human being that the thing that we put ourselves out there to be seen by others is going to have effect on the way that they interact with us, right? So I don't think in military leadership that's any different. If, if what we think is that being intelligent and thoughtful and technically and tactically proficient, skilled in your warrior tasks, physically fit, mentally fit, a model of moral character is what yeah, I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah. You know, you got to you got to have a foundation in all of those things because those things are what make our army founded in values, right? The army values, yeah. right? So you have to be able to model all those things. This sounds like when I guess when I talk about it, it sounds like a lot, but I think in practice, it is just what good army leaders do naturally. You know, they care about people. They care about their health and their welfare. They care about their families. They value their profession. They understand the stakes um, of our profession, which is life and death. And maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, and then, you know, they, they get out and show others what right looks like. And through that, you, yeah. you hit up the other aspects. So adhering to Army values and then our mission, you know, is life or death, accomplishing right. that mission. Yeah, I, th I think that's, um, you know, we talk about the differences between civilian and military leadership. And, I'll, you know, right off the bat, I'm obviously not an expert on civilian professional leadership. But I spend time with with folks that are, and I always think it's interesting because they all kind of say the same stuff. We've probably all heard stories like, you know, if they want to build their team, they take them out to the woods, they make it a little hard, they make them sweat together. I mean, this is common practice, uh, at least in the discussions that I've had with how they do it. And I think we kind of do that pretty well. I think the difference is that their stakes are financial, their stakes are productivity-based, and our stakes are, you know, the welfare of our nation and the lives of our soldiers. I think that's about as high of a level as you could possibly probably be as far as, you know, purpose. My Absolutely. Thought, anyway. Service. Service, mm -hmm. yeah. I also want to talk about when we develop leaders. So not only do we have this responsibility mm -hmm. in our profession, but doctrine is pretty specific about how often we should be developing leaders. Uh, to take a quote out, developing leaders is inherently part of every garrison activity, training event, and real-world operation Army forces conduct around the world. Could you share some experiences or examples of developing leaders in those different environments and, and why that's so important to our profession too? Yeah, I think, one, the statement is absolutely correct. I think we're... we're uh... If you're being an effective leader at any echelon, all the way down to the, the buddy squad, buddy team, you know. So yeah, I mean, I think at, at, a young, at a young age, as a young sergeant in the 82nd Airborne Division, I was probably not the ideal, as we would codify in doctrine now, developer of leaders, developer of mm -hmm. soldiers, uh, because I thought I was supposed to be a certain way, and I was supposed to present you know, myself as a, as an NCO, young NCO leader, a certain way that was really shaped by the environment. It was shaped by the culture. 
and frankly, you know, it was maybe effective in immediate compliance soldiers. Um, you know, I was, I was the, I didn't know any better, right? It was, the, mm-hmm. it was the, really the only technique that I, th- I thought I understood or, or was comfortable with was a very directive approach to, to young leadership. And, and a lot of that's really necessary. You know, if you go back to what I said earlier about, you know, the stakes in, in combat and the foundational discipline, a lot of it is necessary. Uh, but what I've, learned at sort of each echelon and maybe over the years of, of doing doing it wrong and having great mentors, NCO and officer both, sort of pull me aside and get me back on track and give me other, my own, you know, leader development for me. Uh, I, I've definitely changed and added to, to my kit bag, which I think doctrine now does as good a job as ever, or if not better. But I think as you move up, you know, I start at the squad level, the platoon level, the size of the organization gets larger, the experience and maturity capabilities of the leaders that you're developing increases and gets better. Then I think if you're not adapting your techniques, getting a little bit more grounded in in the doctrine, because what I like about our particular leadership doctrine is it's like um it's like a leadership handbook. It's like, you know, it's... A how-to. Kind of, yeah. Mm. I mean, it's a good... You could give that to anybody, and they could read it and say, "Hey, this is these are some really good points in here about how to do stuff." So the Army has a manual for everything, including leadership. I'm going to counter your point, though. Please. Um, that we shouldn't just be focusing on doctrine for leader leader development. No, I agree. FM 622 specifically says Army research shows the most effective developmental experiences occur in the operational domain. That's 100% true. During daily interactions with subordinates as they prepare for and execute missions. So I think yeah. that goes to, okay, doctrine is is this basis and foundation. It's really great to read it. Yeah. It gives you a lot of tools and tips, but you really have to put into practice in the operational Yeah, that's, that's spot on. And, and I accept your criticism <laughs> because it's exactly right. Um, you know, I'm like in the doctrine podcast, so I wanna, I'm trying to connect... <laughs> My thoughts back to the to the doctrine, um, but experientially, you know, I think I've already established I'm not the doctrine expert. And most NCOs, that's not you know our, our focus is on the tactical level of leadership, individuals, crews, small teams, squads, um, and our, our leader development is is experiential in nature. And just exactly to your point, you know, ninety percent or more of the development, true development. When I reflect back, true development that I got happened, you know, in units from NCOs senior to me who actually took a took an interest in what they thought my potential was, um, both good and bad, right? So there's a couple of stories I could tell you where, you know, I wasn't considered to be great, and, and thankfully there was somebody else that came along and saw saw something different and, and got me on track. So I think it's critical because when you're operating at that tactical level, you're constantly in some form of training. If you're not, if you're not constantly going through those iterations and practicing your craft and AARing and giving feedback, I, I mean, we wouldn't necessarily have thought of it. You know, I, you know, when I think back, it probably wasn't thinking like, oh, I'm doing leader development or I'm being leader developed. It was just, you know, pretty honestly, pretty ruthless accounting of my skills in some in some points, but also, you know, how I could be better, things that I could do to be better for the team, things the team could do better. I think, anyway, I'm just really validating your statement from doctrine that experientially, it's exactly how it happens. I want to go back mm. to what you were talking about. You didn't even know that you were being developed. Mm-mm. 
doctrine specifically says each leader subordinate interaction, each interaction is a development opportunity. They are inseparable from training, enforcing standards, providing feedback, and setting a personal example. So I want to talk about that because what should leaders take away from that and what should subordinates take away from that? You don't even kind of realize that you are developing someone and or you don't even realize that you are being developed. Can you can you go through that statement again, the actual the doctrinal statement? Each leader subordinate interaction is a development opportunity. They are inseparable from training, enforcing standards, providing feedback, and setting a personal example. I mean, I don't think anybody would argue that statement. I think it's a foundational principle. But I mean, you know, how would you like me to expound on that? I mean, I think about my commissioning source, mm-hmm. my Bullock, and what was emphasized. Hey, you need to do counseling. It needs to be quarterly counseling. Uh, when I was a platoon leader, it was always a big deal when yeah. the, the counseling folders went up to the first sergeant for his review. It was just a very formal par- process. And I think there was a lot of like, I didn't, I'm a lieutenant and I just got some initial counseling and then my OER came. Yeah. And you know, felt like, oh, I didn't get counseling, you know, on a counseling yeah. form. Am I not being developed? No, I, I totally, that's a great vignette from your career. Um, I think that echoes across all of our cohorts, all of, all of our, our soldiers, NCOs, and officers, because as it relates to, to formal counseling, I think in action, I, I mean, in doctrine, I think we get it right. I think in action, we get it wrong. That's That's just my thought. In in the formal counseling, right? So, I mean, you've been in tactical organizations that are are very engaged and very busy as a company commander, as a platoon leader, as an XO, as an S3. Um, But in those direct leadership roles, what you're talking about, where do you find the time for that, right? I mean, that's always the, the balance between formal counseling and maintaining the formal counseling packet and the amount of time you have to get it right. When you know, just like I knew, every day... I'm counseling and coaching and mentoring, whether or not I wrote it down on paper. So I don't want to say we shouldn't do that. I'm just stating the reality of my experience, very similar to yours, and I would get frustrated in that I had a high-performing organization at whatever level I was at. I believe that to be true at the platoon sergeant level, the squad level. I had the best, and every good NCO will say this, I had the best (laughs) squad, I had the best platoon, I had the best company. And I didn't feel like all that needed to be codified. And I just talked to my unit, talk to my soldiers. They're the best at what they do. You know, they get great feedback from me. You know, I give them fair and honest evaluation. But it wasn't, I wasn't the best at scheduling the time to sit down in accordance with the process and closing the door and having a good conversation. Now, I got better because I think, like I was saying earlier, at Echelon, it becomes more important the way that you conduct that counseling. But I think as an officer, you move those echelons faster. Um, so I had more time to develop, you know, a basic framework for myself before I was ever at an echelon where I felt like, and maybe that was at the first sergeant level, maybe even at the sergeant major level. I mean, to be honest, as a battalion CSM, you know, I was, I didn't have a, an immediate group of people that I was responsible for counseling, right? But mm-hmm. I had the, all of the NCOs of the squadron and I had a mentorship requirement of all of my platoon sergeants, right? So that, the importance of the formality and process in that I thought became more apparent at Echelon. But at it, I guess what I'm saying is the doctrine gets it right and that it says it's continuous, ongoing, it's every interaction that we have. 
I think that to be true. I think every one of your squad leaders believes that to be true and is operating that way. Mm -hmm. I, I think the trick is to help folks understand the value of under, of understanding the differences between formal counseling and what it's for and mentoring and what that's for and coaching and what that's for. I think we do a lot of coaching is what I'm saying. So let's talk about those yeah. three. Okay. ADP 622 has a really great table in it that, you know, says, hey, this is counseling, this is coaching, this is mentoring, and a list of kind of when it should happen, why it should happen. But like we already kind of said, we don't always have doctrine. We're not always pulling it out. So in layman's terms, how do you differentiate those two? And maybe how do you see that maybe people are getting them wrong? What, counseling, coaching, and mentoring? Or or getting them mixed up. Oh, yeah. I think it all gets mixed up, um, which is okay. I mean, I'm, I'm honestly happy that anybody's doing any of this. You know, we've done a lot of work in this organization, writ large within TRADOC, to figure out better ways and better tools, one, to be more self-aware, and two, to be better mentors, coaches, counselors. I think that's really important. I think the tools are really important because we're asking the youngest, least experienced, least wise level of leader to be the most engaged, the most human-to-human contact in this space mm-hmm than any of us. So I could sit down with anybody and do counseling, formal, informal. I can do coaching, mentoring, but I've had 32 years of practice (laughs) leading young people and having these kind of conversations, right? But we're asking Sergeant Helton when I was, I think I was 20 years old. I couldn't buy a beer before I was a sergeant in the army, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I was a sergeant before I could buy a beer, right? Legally, we cut that part. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But... We got to, one, if we're going to write it down and say we got to do it, we got to provide the tools that they're going to need to be at least effective at it or at least understand sort of the type of things that they should think about talking to their soldiers about. And I don't even think I've gotten to what you said, but like I think generationally in this whole other conversation, we have to understand that young people that are 17, 18, 19 years old think differently about feedback and how to get it than you and I think about feedback and how to get it. And if we don't adapt the way our organization, the Army, does this type of thing, then we'll miss the boat. I have a thought that at the end state, Lieutenant Colonel Becker, Sergeant Major Helton, not that you're at the end state, you're just at the beginning, right? (laughs) But for me, I'm at the end state, right? The Army still needs Sergeant Majors. The Army still needs colonels, commanders. But the starting point is different, I think, than, you know, 1990 when I joined the Army. I was a thing. I was a I came out of society into the Army at 17 years old as an entity. And I thought a certain way about things, and the Army accommodated the way I thought. No, it doesn't. No, it didn't. Actually, through these processes that we're talking about, created a me, right, over a long period of time. Um, And I don't think that the same processes that created me would have been the same processes that created my dad or that would create my son if he was to join the Army. I'm working on it. So what... I did not even get to your to your point either. No, I, w- I want to pull this thread about yeah. the Gen Z, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Those young folks. What would? How have you seen that they receive feedback, and maybe what the army should change? So you know, I mean, my daily interaction with Gen Z is limited, admittedly, right? But you know what? I'll just talk about my son. My son, who's 19, he's a good kid, average kid. It's typical. He embraces technology. He's heavily involved in video games as well. You know, that video visual stimulation. But he's also, you know, engaged in the arts and does physical stuff. You know, so he's a pretty well-rounded kid, but he gets a lot of information from the Internet. He's very comfortable with technology. And he also constantly wants to be told where he stands with things. Like, he gets immediate feedback through the games that he plays, from the friends that he interacts with um, in person and digitally. How many likes do you get on social media? Yeah, there's 
there's all this feedback mechanisms that he gets, I think, that cause him to want feedback. And I just say that to say my belief in, in, the, in the reading that I've done and, and the, I guess, hypothesis that I laid out there is that I think young people coming in the Army are hungry for good counseling, good leadership, good mentorship. I think everybody wants good leadership, uh, but particularly more so than I probably did. Uh, want that good feedback. They want some mentoring. They want some coaching. They don't necessarily respond well to maybe what I responded well to, and I think maybe all people are different, but the knife hand approach or the, you know what I mean? I, I think that's still important. There are There's space for that um, directive style of leadership, but I just think we are on the right track with how we're, how we've broken down ways that we provide feedback through counseling formally or informally, mentorship and coaching. I think originally what you asked me was how are these things different, right? In layman's terms, how, how would you define coaching, counseling, mentoring, and may, maybe give some examples of it so that we can say, okay, yeah, I, I always thought coaching was mentoring or vice versa. Or yeah, no, I, I think that's great. great. I, I'm glad we got back to it because I knew that was the original question, but it took me a while. That was a roundabout way to get there, so I apologize for that. But counseling, to me, is the formal, you establish the session you know it's coming. You do some preparation with the soldier. The soldier does some preparation. The counselee, the counselor, both have their own requirements, in my opinion, to do some preparation. I think the counselor should spend some time laying out, you know, sort of three simple things. And it's just Steve Helton talking, you know, where you know where you're at, where you need to be, how we're going to get you there. And then I think the soldier or the counselee probably needs to lay out where they think they're at, uh, where they want to go, and things they think they're going to need to get there, right? And then you, I mean, we, and we have a process for that. I mean, we already sort of do that. You know, that's where you, you've got the session set aside. You've got the time set aside. Formal is a good way to say it, but you're better prepared to have the discussion to get to a specific end state, which should be the development of that person that you're counseling, you know, whether it's for, for positive or for, for improvement or what, whatever, whatever the case may be. Um, I think there's some preparation involved and you've got to set up and, and stick to the time that you set to do it. And frankly, it's a requirement. So we got to do it. We can, we can make all the best tools. We can make all the, write all the best doctrine. But if nobody does the thing, then none of that really matters, right? So I think coaching is sort of, the, to me, the, the next thing. You've got to empower your folks to get out and get after their work, to do whatever it is that, that they need to be experts on and provide in-the-moment improvements, in-the-moment modifications. Coaching, to me, is when you're providing the feedback for specific things to make the team better, to make the individual better, to make corrections in the moment. Sort of like, you know, football coach or, you know, you're not in the game necessarily. Maybe you're not actively involved in that training. Maybe you've removed yourself from the training and allowed a subordinate to take over a role. And then you're there to make sure that, one, they have the opportunity to succeed or fail. You're going to underwrite their risk, I would hope. That would be ideal. So that you can give them the sets and reps they need in order to improve in the task. And then you're going to give them feedback along the way. Oh, hey, I wouldn't do that. Maybe you want to go this way. Okay, because you don't want to, you want to let them fail, but at a thing that's not, at a risk level that's unacceptable, right? You know, I, I think in the training environment, uh, that's, that's probably something, you know, the more seasoned leader does in the coaching sphere is, is assess risk and allow subordinates to lead 
with a little bit of risk that's not catastrophic risk so that they can actually take something through to fruition, succeed or fail, and then, then we can do a good, good brutal AAR, right? Um, and then, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot to coaching in my mind that really relates to our earlier conversation about everyday, constant, in the moment, constant mission coaching. It happens. You know, you've led your whole career as well. I mean, I think that's really the space in which we find ourselves most of the time in operational or, or institutional, but in the Army, operating in the Army, I think we find ourselves as leaders in a coaching space. So having good techniques to coach, I think, is, is really important. Um, and then mentoring. Mentoring is, is probably, you know, for long-term success or decision-making, I think the most important piece because... One, you know, I don't know if it says this in doctrine anywhere, but I think of mentoring as a voluntary relationship between two people, one with more experience than another, who are they both volunteer to share ideas, and the mentee seeks out the guidance of the mentor, and the mentor then sort of maps out the way forward based off their experiences and their assessments of, of their mentee's capabilities and skills, and then helps chart chart the way forward in the longer term. Now, I, I don't know if anything of what I just said is doctrinally sound that's just you know you said in layman's terms i'm trying to just give you how i see it i want to talk specifically about the marriage the marriage between Mm. the first sergeant and marriage and the commander yeah it's a good word the or the command sergeant major and the commander just kind of what you were saying is we have this professional nco core yeah who are trained not to just be yes men so how does leader development work in that relationship Uh, no that's good um so i'll talk a little bit about what i think why i think the relationship is the way it is and why it works and and how it's i think that the army in particular the army in this case gets it really right in that every young officer gets a more seasoned, experienced, non-commissioned officer from, from get-go, right? You get assigned, you're assigned battle buddy from day one as a young lieutenant, I hope, was a good and experienced and seasoned non-commissioned officer who helped guide you through, professionally guide you through the challenges of platoon-level leadership in a way that was, one, reinforcing to the authorities and requirements of being an officer leader, uh, but that also made sure that you were trained and proficient on the day-to-day requirements and tasks of whatever type organization it was, right? So I think it starts early, and it sort of follows that same model through every echelon of, of officer leadership. And you always get assigned a NCO battle buddy at every echelon, right? But I think and you asked specifically about first sergeants and company commanders, um, that relationship is very similar to those leading up to it in that I think the first sergeant rightfully is, you know, a long time, 15, 16 year experienced non-commissioned officer who's been at that level, at that lowest tactical level, training soldiers and accomplishing that very specific tactical mission for all of those years. So they come in with a level of experience and a level of credibility that offsets the relative inexperience of that company commander who's in an incredibly decisive leadership role. I mean, that is a, that's a critical level of leadership where they're, they're on the line for everything that company does or fails to do, both in training and combat and every other aspect, right? But the ability of, I don't know, what do you have, like six years? of service when you're a company commander? Maybe. Or fewer. Six or fewer. Uh, so, you know, you got some sets and reps. You know some stuff. You're a captain. You've been through your leadership course. To be able to lean on that professional non-commissioned officer, sort of similar to what I just talked about in the day-to-day requirements of the individual soldiers and teams and crews, uh, the mission sets, what works, what doesn't work, the personalities, but in a way that's complementary to your leadership style that ensures the 
the confidence, I guess, you know, the confidence of the organization in your leadership, because you are the commander, right? So I think the beauty of that relationship is that it's, I don't know, it's pretty special in that, you know, the, the first arm may be running stuff, you know, out on out on the floor or out, out in the field or, or whatever, but the planning, the decision-making, the way forward, the, you know, the chart the path for the organization, the employment of the capability is the commander, but done in conjunction with your primary advisor will be, you know, in your case, you're an aviator, so you can probably have your first sergeant and your, your senior warrant officer, you know, they're your primary advisor before you make a decision. Now those, as you move up in echelons, and we can talk about battalion and brigade and, and nominative level sergeant major service, um, that relationship is similar, but things that change are important because the decisions that the commander makes are different. They're broader, they affect more people, and more capabilities are employed. So I think the model is sound all the way through, except I think when you reach the battalion CSM relationship level, battalion commander, battalion CSM, the dynamic changes because there's parity in experience there, right? So what I felt like I experienced was I was one, uh, you know, at the battalion level, I was the primary advisor to my battalion commander on most everything, but not everything. There's, there's more folks. There's got the, the XO and the S3 and the other commanders and the other first sergeants, you know what I mean? And then their peers, and they have, you know, 16, 18 years of experience. I don't know, what is that about right? 16, 15 at a battalion command? And really that's about what I had, 17, 18 as a, as a squadron sergeant major. So the things that I was an expert on were still relevant. Um, we, you know, it, so it still fit the model, um, but that parity allows for, you know, a really mutually beneficial relationship and be a little bit more intellectual in your discussion about things and processes. But I think it's still sound in that, you know, the SAR major has been at every level and worked, worked the mission, worked the job, operated at every level um, and can provide, I think, a perspective for the battalion commander that, and not just the battalion commander, really the battalion commander and the staff, a perspective on what it is they're trying to do that may not be seen um, in the planning process, right? So, you know, I always encourage SAR majors, especially those that, that are on the staff, to help help the staff, help the commander understand the micro-terrain of the decisions that they, that they may make, right? I think it's because you've been there. You know already. You can look at the plan. I mean, I feel like I, I can't say you. I should say me. I could look at the plan, <laughs> and I can see the friction points in the plan before we even practice, right? So I would be remiss in my duties if I didn't bring those things up, right? So I didn't say, hey, so instead of, you know, letting the crap hit the fan and knowing the commander's going to launch me out anyway, hey, Sergeant Major or First Sergeant even, hey, I need you to go out here and fix whatever's causing this not to work, which is, which is kind of what happens um, in, in practice. But if we can get in the mix earlier and, and insert our, our knowledge um, to help provide that perspective that maybe adjusts the plan or maybe, you know, at least gives the commander an understanding of the risk, you know, and then they can make a decision about it. What you're talking about reminds me of FM60. So FM60 talks about the sergeant major, senior NCO, getting into the command and control, C2 warfighting yeah. function. And one, I'm going to pull from FM60. Sure. Because it, it sounds like what you were talking about. FM60 says the Sergeant Major drives the force by transmitting and translating the commander's intent, inspiring soldiers. So not just getting into the planning process and seeing those friction points, but tr I love those words, transmitting and, and translating. Oh, yeah. No, I, I for like the formation. No, I think that's great. Great perspective. Throwing me a 6-0 loop. This is good. So, you know, I think at that level and beyond, it's important for our Sergeant Majors to understand 
what the commanders are thinking about, right? So understand, visualize, describe, direct, and, and what our entry point is into helping in those areas, right? So the command, the art of command side. I think, I think that we have something to, to contribute in all of those areas. You know, I think you're that directed telescope for, for your commander as a sergeant major that helps ensure that the understanding is sound, that the, the, the commander's understanding of the situation, and one of many advisors on, on that, um, that you would help understand sort of that, that micro-terrain, you know, what, you know, the, the readiness of the soldiers, what, you know, the, the, you know, do we have the, the, the scheduling, right? You know, like the feeding, the, sl the sleep schedule, when, when we talk about the optimization of the teams that you're gonna employ, you know, are they, the sergeant major should be able to help describe the morale of the force. We say that's a broad term, the morale of the force, right? But really what, to me, that means is, you know, we provided time for them to train and be ready. They're providing them time to make sure their equipment is ready. We provided them time to, to fuel, to, you know what I mean? To hydrate, to fuel, you know, all those things, the readiness of the equipment. Those are the things I think that the sergeant major involves himself in and sort of the understand, visualize. And then the describe is kind of where we, the describe and direct, you know, a lot of sergeant majors might think, well, I'm not really involved in that. But the reality is what you said. You know, I feel like a lot of the times I'm, I'm listening and receiving the message at a level that, that like we talked about there's a parity level you know an experiential parity level I understand what the boss is saying I spent a lot of time telling other folks that no that's not what the boss said right because because there's a translation I think involved in you know I don't know there's this old communication exercise we used to do where you would start with you know, one message and then go down the chain. Yeah, and by telephone. the time we got to the end, it was totally different than when we started. I think that's still a good and valid exercise because I spend a lot of time at every echelon of sergeant majoring um, making sure that folks genuinely understood what the intent was, right? Because we can do anything with some good guidance and intent, right? And and a lot of times it just gets mixed up. And whether that's subordinate commander, command teams, commanders, and first sergeants or sergeant majors, I've, I've often said, no, 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 that's not what the CO said. <laughs> yeah. Here's what he said. Um, and I might not, I may paraphrase, you know, I think a good, a good senior NCO leader has the ability, I don't know, sort of like a chameleon, like whatever group you're talking to, you can take that same message that was this, you know, whatever it was at the top, I'm making gestures, I know nobody can see it, so I apologize. <laughs> but, you know, whatever it was at the top line, you know, by the time it gets to the bottom line, you know, whether it's at the company level, it might be, hey, this is, this is what he meant by that for the company. And then I can talk to soldiers, you know, out in the field, in the hide side, in the, wherever they are, um, and, and help give clarity to what we're really getting after. So, yeah, I think, I think that the SAR major has a, just exactly what you said in 6.0, has a critical role to play in both the command and control functions in, in operations. So, uh, you know, the control side, I think, is for me, is really focused around the discipline and the standards, ensuring the proper execution of basic soldier and crew, small team tasks. Um, you know, there's, there's got to be somebody out there trooping the line. I think that's just super important um, that that there is somebody that understands the big picture that is actually out there on the line making sure that things are being done according to standard. Because if not, 
then the risk level for the commander, for, for the leaders, goes up, you know, maybe exponentially. I don't know. It depends, I guess. But if there's not somebody ensuring the completeness at the, at the lowest level, the discipline, the standards of execution at the lowest level, you know, potentially every level above that gets compromised by that lack of, of foundational discipline, right? So I think there's a critical role to play. And, it, and it's a great, you said marriage, and that's probably a great word because the roles are symbiotic. I think, you know, if we do it right, then the commander does what commanders do. And the sergeant major or the first sergeant as a part of that is an extension of that at a level where, you know, the granularity is, is more, uh, but it's all nested in the same idea, right? Which comes from the commander, frankly, from the mission. Any other parting thoughts before we wrap up? Oh, man. Is that it? Are we at the end? No, I mean, really, I would just say I appreciate the opportunity to kind of give my thoughts on these things. I think that when we talk about leader development, well, frankly, I think we should talk more about leader development. I think in the Army in transformation as it is now, uh, there's a lot of talk about material solutions, Mm -hmm. you know, getting after gaps in our capabilities against near-peer threats. But But the really decisive advantage I think that we have is our leaders, our people, the human beings that are in our organizations that are smart and adaptive and well-trained that aren't afraid to take a chance to, you know, to accomplish the mission, (laughs) you know what I mean, in changing environment. It's really people that do that. It's leadership that does that. And if we don't get this right, then we would lose that advantage, which has to be fundamental to everything else, in my opinion. Yeah, it doesn't matter if we're superior in each piece of equipment that we have or the material solution. Right. If people can't be adaptive and agile and I think it goes hand in hand. I think as we modernize our equipment and our organizations, I think there's a huge aspect to leadership that we have to maintain the same pace on to make sure that the things that we're training on, the things that we're, we're, um, we're writing about um, are all nested in the most current information that we have. Um, and I think we're doing a pretty good job of that, frankly, in the Army. And, and maybe that's just a shameless plug for the organization that I'm in. <laughs> but, but I'm pretty proud of, of the work that we're doing in this space. Um, and, I, and I would encourage anybody that took the time to listen to this to really dig into 622. I think those are all really good and modern works. Uh, that everybody ought to spend some time digging into. You know, additionally, like if you don't want to read it, we know we've got audiobooks now, which is a great deal. I'll plug one in, not plug one in. That's my old school thinking, right? I'll I'll pull it up on my app and I'll put my head but earbuds in and listen to it when I'm traveling, and, and it's a great way to to stay up on doctrine. Although I feel like I don't retain it as well from from audio, but but it gives me a good foundation and certainly sends me back into the books to look at things, something I heard, and then do a little bit more work on. But yeah, I think it's it's just a Critical, critical aspect of our army and our, again, our, a distinct advantage that we have to maintain. So I just really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. I just hope it's helpful. Thanks we'll for see. joining us today. You bet, ma'am. Just like writing new doctrine is a team effort, breaking doctrine takes a team. Without the crew and special doctrine division here at CAD, we wouldn't be able to bring you this show. Our production is coordinated by Mr. Ted Crisco, and our editing and sound is provided by Captain Wyatt Harper and 29 Pixels. Please don't forget to subscribe on Google, Apple, or Spotify podcasts, and follow us on social media at U.S. Army Doctrine to get updates on new podcasts, Doctrine Digest videos, and publications. Finally, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, or the Combined Arms Center. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Lisa Becker, and this has been Breaking Doctrine.